I invite you to take out your Bibles now and turn to John chapter 6. John 6, starting in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. A sense reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. We thank you so much for the blessing of your word and for the glorious truths it contains. Lord, now as we open up your word, as your word is proclaimed, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, may it be unto the edification of your people and the conversion of sinners. And Lord, may you be glorified in us now and always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up in John chapter 6, uh, right in the middle of Jesus' discussion with the Jews, following the miracle of transforming, uh, or multiplying rather, the fish and the loaves. Jesus has declared that he is the bread of life, uh, superior even to the manna from heaven that Israel ate in their wilderness wanderings, and he is superior in that whoever comes to him will receive eternal life, neither hungering nor thirsting. And yet, as we've seen, despite who Christ is, despite his power having been put clearly on display, many of those to whom he was speaking did not believe. They did not accept his claims. And so this then raises the question, can Jesus then in some way be said to be a failure? Jesus began to address this question in verse 36 where he says, you have seen, but do not believe. So then, is Jesus a failure? So to catch this context of this whole discussion that we've been unpacking about election, about grace, about the nature of man, notice the context. Jesus raises these topics to explain the unbelief of the Jews. And it functions then as an answer to the question of whether or not Christ's mission could fail. The answer, of course, is no. Christ will not fail. The unbelief of the crowd in front of him does not indicate that Christ is a failure, for as he states in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The Jews then take exception to this statement of Christ about having come down from heaven. Let's read together our passage for this morning from verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And he said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now, first off, there's an interesting parallel here. If you remember the account from the story of Exodus that we uh, preached through as well, in the wilderness wanderings, the manna from heaven, God supplied, you'll remember, there was a lot of grumbling in those passages, murmuring, complaining against God and Moses. It's a very common theme throughout the wilderness wanderings. And so notice the parallel here. These men have now received miraculous provision from Christ, right? who gave, who multiplied bread and fish, and he now reveals to them glory of glories that he is the true bread from heaven, greater than the manna, for those who receive him will receive eternal life. And what's their response to this true bread from heaven? Well, just like their fathers before them, they grumble. They murmur against him. What is their complaint? They say, look to the text. Is this not Jesus? Isn't this Mary and Joseph's boy? Right? We know his parents. We know where he grew up. How then can he claim that he came from heaven? They assumed that they knew everything they needed to know about his lineage. And so they were not willing to accept his claim to have come down from heaven. But if we could state it positively, their objection is this in a nutshell. You didn't come down from heaven. You grew up in Nazareth. Right? We know your parents. We could play the Mennonite game or their equivalent. Uh, we know all of your relatives. We can find connections. So how then can you say that you have come down from heaven? Right? They grumble against him, and they appear to have assumed that there was no possible answer to their objections. Their hearts were hard, and they grumbled, just as their fathers had in the wilderness. Instead of truly seeking Jesus, instead of coming to him to see if there was an answer to this conundrum, they grumbled. They assumed there was no answer. So there's a lesson for us here, and that is do not grumble against the Lord, but always give him the benefit of the doubt. Kids, young people, teenagers, as you come of age, you will undoubtedly it, uh, run into questions about the Bible, about the gospel, about the faith in general, especially if you end up going to a uh, secular university, you will almost certainly encounter people who will challenge your faith. Right? People who will bring objections, who will allege contradictions. And these, at first glance, can sound quite compelling. Intelligent people or intelligent-sounding people declaring things authoritatively can be quite persuasive. Right? So your professors will bring forth challenges to the faith. And unfortunately, many Christian freshmen, first-year university students, have been completely unprepared for such challenges. They end up being blindsided by their professors. And so one of the big mistakes that they will make is that they will take their professor's word for it. Right? They will hear a challenge to the faith that they can't answer, and they will wrongly assume that there is no answer. Right? Much like these men, they have their objection, that is, we know where Jesus is from. We know, or thought they knew, who his parents were. 
Therefore, he must be making false claims. Right? There is, they bring the objection and they dismiss the claims of Christ, mistakenly assuming that there could be no possible answer. Let us not follow this error. Let us always give to God the benefit of the doubt. Keep in mind that just because you don't currently know the answer does not mean that there isn't one. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. All right, so to return to the text, what was the answer to this particular objection? Right, they claim, we know where you're from. How can you then say that you came down from heaven? Well, the answer is that Jesus, in fact, had a miraculous conception and birth. Joseph was not Jesus's biological father, as the Jews wrongly assumed. But as we know, Jesus was born of a virgin. And the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, uh, Luke 1.35, and she conceived. And as the prologue, or the introduction to this gospel, has already explained, God the Son has eternally existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, kids, have you ever thought about this one before? Where was Jesus before he came to earth as a man? He was with the Father in the beginning. He was with God. And so God has eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son, having taken on a human nature. Right, as John 1, verse 14 put it, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has eternally existed. He is not created. He did not begin to exist, but to blow your minds, try to imagine to go as far back as you can possibly think, right back before the creation of the world, back into eternity past, and God was there, Father Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son is the person of the Trinity who entered into his own creation as a man. The Word, the eternal Logos, became flesh. That is, he became a man, became flesh and blood and skin and bones. Truly man, and yet truly and fully God. So, with this understanding, we see it is entirely accurate for Christ to say that he came down from heaven. He was truly born of Mary as we celebrate every Christmas. And it is entirely true for him to say that he came down from heaven. Now what's interesting though about this particular text is that Jesus doesn't even try to give this explanation. Right? Had he wanted to, he could have told them, well actually the Holy Spirit overshadowed my mother and joined. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give any sort of explanation here. Instead, he simply rebukes their grumbling, and he points to the deeper problem. 
Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So notice Jesus explains their unbelief and their grumbling by pointing out something about human nature apart from the intervention of God's grace. And that is, mankind on his own is not able to come. Not unless God first works in their heart. Now understanding that Jesus says this in order to explain why the Jews are responding as they are is very helpful for us in understanding the meaning here. And that's frequently a helpful question to ask when you're interpreting scripture. Or you have a statement from Christ or an apostle, a verse you're trying to understand. Uh, one of the best questions that you can ask is, how does this verse function in this passage? Right? Why is this verse here? Right? Uh, in this case, we ask, why does Jesus make these statements about the capacity uh, the capacities of man. And so, it's helpful for us to note, as we try to understand this, that Jesus says this to explain the unbelief of the crowds. Right? He says this to explain the unbelief of the crowds. Uh, look down with me to chapter 6, verse 63. So further on here, uh, the same discussion. Uh, the conflict between Jesus and this crowd continues to escalate. And Jesus continues to say some hard things, like you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life. And so the crowd continues to grumble against him. Um, and he responds then in verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And John the author adds this parenthesis. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, those who, uh, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then he said, This is why I told you that no one can come unless, unless it is granted him by the Father. Unless it is given to him by the Father. So notice here as well, Jesus continues to explain the unbelief of some of his disciples including Judas, as well as the unbelief of the crowds. And so he references back to what he said in verse 44 and says it again. This is why I told you that no one can come unless it is granted by the Father. I take that to be the same thing there as being drawn by the Father. God is giving the ability to come. God is the one drawing you in. And so Jesus' answer as to why there are some who have seen him, yet do not believe, verse 36, his answer as to why the Jews are grumbling, and his answer as to why many of those who called themselves his disciples are turning away, is that it has not been granted to them by the Father. They have not been drawn by the Father. Now why is this so important for us to see? Well, there are, it's because there are many who will argue that the Father draws all men in the same way. So let us note at the outset here that if God truly was drawing all men in the same way, 
Right? If this drawing or this granting was something God does for everyone, then this would not make any sense of the context. Remember, Jesus' statement in verse 44, and again in verse 65, would then not serve as any kind of explanation for the unbelief of the crowds. And we see as well that this is not the only place where Jesus gives this reason as an explanation for unbelief. John chapter 8, verse 47. In another conflict with the Jews, Jesus says, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. John Piper comments on this text. Hearing the words of God refers to a hearing with understanding and agreement. It is virtually the same as responding with faith or coming to Jesus. And the reason Jesus says they do not hear is that they are not of God. Being of God would refer then to the choice of God to draw them. In other words, the decisive cause behind hearing and understanding and believing the words of God is a prior position called being of God. In other words, no one can come to me unless they are of God, the God who then draws them to me, close quote. We see it again in John chapter 10. The Jews challenge Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. You are not of my sheep. Notice that it's not the other way around. We would think that we are not a sheep because we do not believe. Jesus says, no, you do not believe because you are not a sheep. Jesus says it's being one of his sheep that determines whether or not they will believe. So then why does he say they do not believe? They are not his sheep. Why did they not listen in John 8? They are not of God. Why did the crowds reject Christ? No one can come unless the Father draws him, grants it to them. And it is only those who have been given from the Father to the Son who will become, who will come, who will be drawn. So here is Jesus' point as he's being confronted by these murmurers, these grumbling crowds, grumbling about the bread from heaven, just as that generation in the wilderness did. Jesus is explaining their unbelief, later the unbelief of Judas, those who turn away, by saying, no one can come unless the Father draws them. No one can come unless it is granted, unless it is given to them by the Father. Christ, therefore, is not a failure. For all that the Father gives him will come, and no one can come unless the Father draws them. So, to summarize this point, why aren't they coming? John 6, 36. How is it that they have seen and yet do not believe? The Father has not drawn them. 
and those whom the Father does not draw cannot come. And here we have one of the most direct statements in all of Scripture about the capacity of man. That is, what is man capable of doing on his own? Do we have complete free will? Jesus' statement here in verse 44 poses a serious challenge to someone who would deny the effects of sin upon human nature. Jesus makes this statement, no one can come. That is, no one is able to come. In the Greek, no one has the power within them to come. No one has the ability to come. We see that is, unless something happens. No one can come unless the Father draws them. D. Carson writes that this thought here is the negative counterpart of verse 37, which says that all whom the Father gives will come. Here we are told that no one can come unless the Father draws them. Jesus makes a direct statement about the ability of man. And that is, apart from the drawing of the Father, no one is able to come. There is a lack of capacity, a lack of ability. We cannot do it. Why? Why this inability? Well, the reason that Scripture gives is our fallen sinful nature. Now we note, God did not make mankind like this. Right? Man was made upright, holy, and good. And yet, able to fall from that state. And so sin has so radically affected us that every part of our being is tainted by sin. And that is what we mean when we speak of total depravity. Right? We're not saying that man does as much evil as he possibly could, but rather we're saying that our depravity is total, that there is no part of us that has not been tainted by sin, our thoughts, our reasoning, our will, and our emotions. Such that scripture describes us as being dead in transgression and sin. Ephesians 2.1 Slaves to sin. John 8, 34, describes us as having hearts made of stone. Ezekiel 36, 36. And so our nature impacts our desires. Because of our fallen sinful nature, we have fallen sinful desires. Why is it that we find sin so appealing? Nobody sins out of a sense of duty. I've never met anyone who says they woke up one morning and said, you know, I guess I'd better do some sinning today. Rather, we sin because in the moment, we want to. Why do we want to? Why is there such a strong inclination in us? It is our nature. We are fallen. Psalm 51, verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are fallen in Adam, 
and are born with a sinful nature. Right? This is precisely why you do not need to teach your children to lie, or to be selfish, or to smack each other over the head. They come by this honestly. Right? They bear this family resemblance, first to you, which you know all too well if you have kids, and secondly to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Right? And so we are bound by our nature. So radically has it impacted us that Scripture speaks of a real inability for us to come to Christ apart from a work of God in our hearts. Romans 8, 7, 8 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And to be in the flesh simply means to be apart from the Holy Spirit. Right? To be in the flesh in the sense to be without the Spirit. So Paul says, those who are in the flesh, those who do not have the Holy Spirit of God, cannot submit to God's law, nor can they truly please God. So we would ask, are repentance and faith in Christ pleasing to God? Absolutely. Therefore, this is not something you can do apart from the work of God in your heart. A man who is dead in sin cannot simply choose to make himself alive. A man with a heart of stone cannot simply choose to make it soft. A man who is a slave to sin cannot simply choose to set himself free from slavery. And here's the kicker, nor do they want to. It is the willingness that is missing. It is the desire that is missing. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we see, because of our fallen and sinful condition, grace is absolutely necessary. God must work in our hearts. The Father must draw us. So here we come to a big question, one that we've begun to answer already, and that is, does the Father then draw all men in the same way? Right? Is this a grace that God gives equally to everyone? Right? There are some who argue this way. Uh, nearly everybody will acknowledge the necessity of grace. They will acknowledge that apart from God's grace, we can't come to Christ. Right? So they won't deny the effects of the fall into sin. But then there are some who will claim that this necessary grace, this drawing of the Father, is something that God does equally for all people. One of the common arguments uh, to make that point is to point to John 12, verse 32, where Jesus uses the same word, draw. Jesus says there, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people. To myself. And so the argument goes, Jesus says he will draw all people. That's the same word, draw, and it is. Uh, therefore, John 6, 4, 44, 
must be read to say that this drawing of the Father is something that he does equally for all. Right? Jesus says, when I lift it up, I'll draw all people to myself. Therefore, this drawing must be applicable to all people. There are a number of reasons why this doesn't work. Firstly, if you look over in John chapter 12, you'll see pretty clearly that Jesus is not talking about the same thing that he is in John chapter 6. If you look to that context, you'll see in verses 20 to 23 that there were some Greeks who came seeking Jesus, and Jesus did not go speak to them. Rather, he explained to those around him that the hour had come, he was about to die, and when he was lifted up on the cross, that is, uh, in, his, in his crucifixion, uh, that then after his death, he would draw all people to himself. So the point is this, while in his earthly ministry, Jesus had said several times that his mission was firstly to the lost sheep of Israel, he is saying here that he did not come to only save the Jews, but when he is lifted up, he would draw all peoples, right? that is all people groups, all people without distinction. Jews, Greeks, barbarians, Scythians, and, thank the Lord, Canadians. This is the answer to those Greeks who had come uh, to seek him, but did not gain an audience. After I lift it up, I will draw all people to myself. And so if you look at this text, you'll see it has absolutely nothing to do with the natural capacity or ability of man. It is not talking about the necessity of grace to draw people to Christ, but it is a different context with a different topic, and Jesus is making an entirely different point. You therefore cannot take what Jesus says there and force it into John chapter 6 in order to completely alter the meaning of the passage. Secondly, to say as well that what Jesus said in John 6 in Capernaum can't be understood apart from what Jesus said to a different crowd in a different time in a different city, makes you wonder how the Jews to whom Jesus spoke in John 6 were supposed to understand him. And if all of this weren't enough, look back at John 6.44 and notice the results of being drawn by the Father. <clears throat> no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what does Jesus say is the result of being drawn by the Father in this way? He says, those who are drawn will be raised up. Those who are drawn will be raised up. As Jesus has already said, all who come will not be cast out. Verse 37. Here he says, those who do come, those whom the Father draws, he will raise up on the last day. So if he then tries to say that all are drawn by the Father in this way, we would be forced to embrace universal salvation. Right? Universalism, the idea that all will be saved. For we see that all who are drawn by the Father will be raised up. So then if God draws all, 
That means God saves all. We know that is not the case. Not all will be saved in the end. And remember again that Jesus is in the process of explaining the unbelief of the Jews. The reason he gives for why they are not believing him, why they are not coming to him, is that they have not been drawn by the Father. They are not his sheep. They are not of God. Uh, the Father did not give them to Christ, for if he had, they would come. So the text clearly does not allow us to say that all are drawn by the Father in this way. Rather, what Jesus is teaching, backing up to verse 37, is that all those, is that the Father has chosen a particular people and has given them to Christ, and that all of these people, in his timing, God will draw to Christ. He will move in their hearts. He will make them alive, though they were dead in sin. And here we come to the beautiful doctrine we call effectual calling. So given the inability of man, of fallen man, to come to Christ on their own, given as well what we've seen about this drawing of the Father, this grace of God that does more than merely make salvation possible, we ask them, what happens in us? What does God do? How do we go from being dead in transgression and sin, hostile to God, unable to submit to his law or to even please him? How do we go from that to now being lovers of God, being people who love the Lord our God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, who love the Lord Jesus, who come to him in faith, obedient and grateful children of God? What is it? that happens in us. What is this drawing of the Father? Theologians call this effectual calling. Romans 8, verse 30, golden chain of redemption. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so notice that link in the chain, which is between predestination and justification. Those whom he predestined, he also called. This text, too, is clear that this calling is not something God does for everyone. For as you see, all who are called are justified and glorified. Right? They are saved. So this is not merely hearing the gospel. It is not merely an external call. Right? If it were an external call, well, then we say everyone who hears the gospel is saved. So we should simply drive through every neighborhood, blaring the gospel on loudspeaker trucks, and everybody would be saved in that way. Right? That's not what this is. Uh, nor is it something that merely makes salvation possible, but rather we see it is an inward, effectual call. So Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. 
So what is this effectual calling? What is this drawing of the Father? This is God removing our heart of stone and granting us a heart of flesh. This is God speaking into the darkness of our hearts as he spoke to the void before creation. Let there be light. This is Jesus speaking into the tomb. Lazarus, come forth. This is God making us alive even when we were dead in transgression and sin. This is the spirit of the living God blowing over the valley of dry bones, causing those bones to come to life. God grants us his spirit, overcomes our fallen nature, grants us new desires, opens our hearts, our ears, our eyes, our minds, and renews our wills. This is the miracle of the new birth. Remember John 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see nor enter the kingdom. This is the miracle of resurrection power. The same Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead now raises you who were spiritually dead. It gives you a new heart, one inscribed with the law of God. This is freedom from the power of sin under which you were formerly enslaved. And this is what is true of every true Christian. If you are in Christ, this is true of you. If you are in Christ, it is God's grace that has made the difference in you. You did nothing to earn God's grace. By definition, grace cannot be earned, cannot be deserved. It is unmerited favor. There was nothing in you that God foresaw which inclined him to grant you this grace rather than someone else. Right? All mankind, apart from this grace of God, is equally, all mankind are equally dead in sin. That is, up until God makes us alive. And so in all those examples we've looked at, all those references we keep quoting, what I hope you see is that it is God who makes the difference. You who were dead in sin, God made alive. Ephesians 2.5 You who had a heart of stone, God has removed your heart of stone and granted you a heart that works, a new heart. He is the one who put his law within you and wrote it on your heart, Jeremiah 31, 31. He is the one who has predestined you, chosen you in Christ from before the foundation of the world. He is the one who then called you internally, effectually, justified you, and one day will glorify you. He is the one who has drawn you to Christ, for no one can come unless the Father draws them. And this drawing is effectual. Right? The call produces the desired effect, such as Lazarus come forth. Praise the Lord for his glorious, effectual, and all-sufficient grace. So to turn the corner and draw some application, what are the results 
of understanding these doctrines, as the Puritans would say, what are the uses of these doctrines? Why should, why should any of this matter to us? Another way to ask, why did Jesus reveal this to us? Right? Why does Jesus give us this peek behind the curtain of eternity? Right? Why did God see fit to put this in Scripture, to make this known to his people? There are a number of reasons. We could spend quite a few sermons unpacking the reasons. But first, directly from the context, we see that Christ is no failure. Right In John chapter 6, this is the reason that Jesus says this. It is to show that he is no failure. The unbelief of this crowd does not indicate that Christ has failed. Christ's confidence in the success of his mission rests in the sovereign purposes of Almighty God and not in the fickle will of man. Man cannot frustrate the plans of God. And so the scoffing, the rebellion, the scorn of the world is no sign of failure. Though the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain, taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us remember the rest of Psalm 2. That he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so though Christianity is mocked, Though we are called names by the world, though all the powers of hell and all the nations of the earth would plot against the Lord, would battle against his kingdom, their wicked plots will not succeed. Christ's kingdom will not, cannot be stopped. For all that the Father gives to Christ will come to him. And the Father has given Christ the nations. Psalm 2 continues on, written from the perspective of the Messiah. I will tell of the decree, the Lord Yahweh said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. As Greg Bonson likes to say, do you think Christ forgot to ask? Right? This was the offer, the, the reward for his sufferings. Do you think Christ forgot to ask? And so we see Christ's kingdom is one that will fill the earth. The nations belong to him. And so though Christians may differ regarding the details of how this will all shake out, we all agree that the story ends with a victorious Christ reigning over a renewed and redeemed creation. The unbelief of the crowds, the persecution that Christ faced, and the persecution that his people face is therefore no indication that Christ has failed. For the success of this mission rests in the sovereignty of Almighty God. He will work out his plans. He will save all whom he has purposed to save. 
he will redeem this fallen creation. Not one of those whom the Father has given to the Son will be lost. So take heart. So you see a world on fire. So you see insanity around you. The darkness you see will not have the last word. The darkness will not win. Though we may yet face persecution and suffering, we do so with hope. Knowing that Christ is risen, and so sin, death, and Satan are defeated foes. Christ will receive his reward. Christ's kingdom will conquer. Christ is not a failure. Second application we may have confidence in the scriptures. The scripture reveals to us that it is through the preaching of the gospel that the Holy Spirit draws people to Christ. We know that apart from the work of God in the heart, no one can come. And so one of the implications of this is that we do not need to modify the gospel in order to fit the desires of fallen man. The message does not need changing, it is men's hearts that need changing. The scripture teaches that the Spirit does that through the preaching of the Word. The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. So we refuse to modify the message. We refuse to round off the hard edges or dilute the Gospel in any way. We do not apologize for the ways that God's holy and inspired word is offensive to rebel sinners. For we recognize that the only reason they find it so offensive is because they love the darkness rather than the light. John 3, 19. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness more than the light because their works were evil. And so the fact that men hate God's word does not mean there's anything wrong with God's word. Simply testifies to what the word has already declared. That apart from the work of God in us, our hearts are made of stone. But once the spirit moves in the heart, once God opens eyes, what was once hateful to the sinner becomes beautiful to the redeemed saint. So brothers and sisters, do not apologize for God's word. Do not be ashamed of holding positions that the culture would have you be embarrassed by. It is their hardness of heart that caused them to see it that way. And God has the power to remove their hearts of stone and grant them hearts of flesh. And he does that through the preaching of the gospel. Finally, to close, understanding these doctrines will orient our lives in the right direction. For we will see that we have contributed nothing to our own salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. God chose you. God sent his son. Christ provided your righteousness. Christ died on the cross to bear the penalty for your sin. Christ rose from the dead. Christ ascended to be your intercessor. It is then the Spirit who moved in your heart to open it, 
to convict you of sin, to grant you the gift of faith, to draw you to Christ. It is the Spirit who indwells you and sanctifies you, and the Spirit who will keep you, who will preserve you, and the Spirit who will raise you up on the last day. And so the credit, the glory, the honor, and the praise for your salvation belongs to God alone. You were lost. He found you. You were dead. He made you alive. You were sinning. He saved you. Salvation belongs to our God. Glory to God alone. Amen.